Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast, recording once again remotely from my kitchen in Providence, Rhode Island. Some of our best political science students at Providence College take on an arduous project their final year writing a senior honors thesis. To take on a thesis, students must submit a proposal to the department chair the spring semester of their junior year. If approved, the student, under the direction of a three-person thesis committee, a principal thesis advisor and two other faculty members, works both semesters of the senior year researching and writing the thesis. Upon completion, the student presents a formal defense of the thesis to the thesis committee and other attending faculty and students. Today, we are featuring the honors thesis of Emily Asherill, class of 2020, who successfully defended her thesis this past May 7th. Her thesis, entitled From Authoritarian Rule to Democratic Accountability, the Negotiation for Human Rights Trials Following the Proceso Regime, examines the aftermath of Argentina's military dictatorship of the 1970s and the complex politics surrounding holding accountable for their human rights abuses those complicit in the military dictatorship. Emily is with us today for a conversation about her findings and the experience of writing an honors thesis. Talking with us also will be Emily's thesis advisor, Professor Thea Riofrancos who will provide her perspective on the thesis writing process. So Emily and Thea, welcome to Beyond Your News Feed. Uh, Emily, uh, I understand you're in New Jersey, correct? Yes. West Orange, New Jersey, where she is hunkered down with her mom and dad uh, these last few weeks. And Thea is uh, remotely uh, a a few blocks away from where I am on the east side of Providence, right? (laughs) Okay. All right, so we're podcasting in the new uh, environment. Uh, thanks to Reagan Wind, who has uh, provided us with the, the software and expertise to allow this remote uh, podcasting and, and making it possible. Uh, just before we begin, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about Emily. Uh, Emily, uh, as of today, is a summa cum laude graduate of Providence College, right, Emily? Yes, after yesterday, our virtual graduation. Right, and you did that in full cap and gown, I understand. I did. All right, good. Um, And I must say that Reagan Wind as well, who's our producer, also graduated yesterday, also in full cap and gown. So congratulations to you both. Uh, Emily, uh, at Providence College, has been a double major in political science and Spanish with a minor in Latin American studies. She also completed the liberal arts honors program. Um, During her time at Providence College, uh, Emily went abroad to Seville, Spain for a semester where she honed her Spanish skills. And then the spring, the summer pardon me, the summer of 2018, uh, spent that summer in Argentina, uh, again, learning about uh, Argentina's culture 
and politics. Uh, Emily plans to matriculate at Seton Law Law School uh, this coming fall. So congratulations on your admission to Seton Hall, and uh, you can look forward to that, Emily. Thank you. Okay, so let's. Uh, what I'd like to do today is first spend some time talking about the the substance of Emily's thesis, which is very very interesting, and then uh, after we do that, talk a little bit about the experience of writing an honors thesis and what that's what that's like uh, from both the student perspective and advisor's perspective. So Emily, to start us off, can you just walk through in maybe a minute or so uh, the basic takeaway from your thesis? What were your principal findings? Yes. So my thesis focuses on this um, period of transition to democracy in Argentina following the Proceso military dictatorship, which was in power from 1976 to 1983. And so my research primarily focused on, um, on the impacts of the dictatorship for the new democracy, especially in terms of the prosecution of the human rights abuses um, perpetrated by the regime, and how Raul Alfonsin, who was the first president after the, after the military dictatorship, um, navigated these contradicting forces as he was trying to reestablish democracy in the country, and hold those um, perpetrators of abuses accountable for their actions. So we'd actually put this, uh, to use some political science jargon, into the, the transition to democracy literature, right? Right. Uh, going from a dictatorship to a democracy, a very fraught and complex process that's occurred in a number of countries around the world. And your, your thesis really looks at what happened in Argentina. Uh, so let's dig into this a little bit. So let's start back at the beginning. The, the military dictatorship from 1976 to 1983, uh, what was that like? Uh, how did it come about? And what were some of the features of that dictatorship? Right. So the military took power um, in 1976. They're, they took power in a coup. Um, Isabel Perón was the president at the time. Um, and this was a period of a lot of economic and political unrest. And a big part of the regime's goal in taking power was to establish this sense of order. Um, and this was in reaction to um, guerrilla violence and um, as well as just differing um, political views and a greater mobilization of the popular sector as well. Um, so and yes. If I could interrupt, Emily. So, so the, the dictatorship uh, basically overthrew uh, the democratically elected president, Isabel Perón, who was the wife of Juan Perón, right? Right. She was a per Peronista, uh, the famous Juan Perón. Listeners may be familiar with the musical Evita. Right. Uh, so this was Perón's first wife. Yes. And Isabel uh, was his second. And Perón had been dead for several years, right? Yes. Uh, and Isabel Perón succeeded him. So that was the, the democratic uh, regime that the dictatorship overthrew, right? Right. So, uh, so what was the basic, you said the political orientation of the dictatorship was to, to restore order. You want to say a little more about that? 
Yes. So there were, there's kind of a two prong way in which the dictatorship um, went about this, this reestablishing of order. So on one hand, there was the implementation of neoliberal economic policies. So um, cutting tariffs and really cutting these protections that had been in place for um, domestic production and um, really just embracing this neoliberal policies, which was also very, uh, very popular for the Chilean dictatorship, which was happening in a, around the same time. Um, there was some overlap between those two. And the second prong of this was a great level of political repression. So anyone who opposed the regime was subject to extreme violence. Um, there were thousands of disappearances during the military regime. Um, and it was very widespread as well. So it wasn't just those who had been involved in guerrilla violence who were being targeted by the military regime. It was members of all social classes um, who were perceived as um, being sympathetic to Marxist ideology or communist ideology. Um, even those who worked with the church, um, which though um, members of the hierarchy of the church did support the dictatorship at some points, those who were involved in like community outreach work were among those who were targeted by the regime because this idea of welfare was associated with these dangerous ideologies that the regime was trying to suppress. Emily, you mentioned disappearances. What did it mean to be disappeared? Could you tell us more about what that involved? Yes. Um, so the regime was had this network of repression that was very secretive. So any so if someone was identified as being against the regime, often they were taken from their homes during the middle of the night, or they were taken off the street as they went to work or to school. Um, and they were taken to essentially concentration camps where they were tortured for information um, and many were killed as well. And the, But the reason they're referred to as the disappeared, desaparecidos in Spanish, um, is because this was done very secretively. So it wasn't like they were taken and given a trial and people knew the fate of their family members when they were taken. Um, it was done very secretively so that the real fate of what happened to many of these people still isn't known. Yeah, the regime actually had a policy of simply not even acknowledging that they had arrested these people or or, exactly. having, or having any knowledge of what happened to them. So, uh, and and many of these uh, people who were disappeared were very young, right? College yes, students, students or even high school yeah. students. Mm -hmm. So, so that led to to mothers gathering in the 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 Plaza de Mayo, right? right? Yeah. So during the regime itself, um, a group of mothers began demonstrating in the Plaza de Mayo in the capital city of Buenos Aires um, to demand information about their missing children. And this was a very brave action. Um, and really, no other large protest movement um, arose during the dictatorship because the, the level of repression was so high. Um, but these mothers um, because the issue was so personal for them, were really motivated to do that. 
And also because of that role as a mother, they weren't initially initially viewed as a threat by the regime, but eventually those mothers themselves became targeted for repression. Yeah, I'm I'm old enough to remember uh, the the Madre de Plaza de Mayo, uh, and in fact, they got a lot of international publicity, which uh, was uh, I remember seeing news reports about that. So. Uh, what happened to the military dictatorship and then how did it come to an end? So kind of the last straw for the military dictatorship was when um, they launched a campaign to retake the Falkland Islands, which um, were, which had been under dispute. Um, they were controlled by Great Britain, but this um, ownership had been under, dis- under dispute from Argentina. And this was an effort by the military to reestablish their credibility with the population um, by taking on this campaign that had this great historical resonance for the Argentine people, um, that the Falkland Islands were rightfully Argentina's. Um, However, the military venture ended in disaster. Um, They were, it was really decimated by Great Britain, this effort. Um, And that was kind of the final straw, uh, along with economic crises that were going on and the increasing international pressure because the human rights abuses were becoming more well-known. Probably, as you mentioned, with the Madres de Plaza de Mayo, that was becoming more internationally known as well. So there was greater pressure there. Um, So with that combination of factors, the um, civil forces were able to um, take this role in transition Um, after the dictatorship had collapsed, so that then elections were going to happen um, and the transition to democracy would occur. Um, And because of the weakened position of the military dictatorship, they really did step back. This wasn't a controlled transition um, in which they would be be able to confirm a very strong place for themselves in the new, in the new regime. It was clear that they had become so weakened that the civil forces were going to come forward and organize this return to democracy. So, so that tr- transition occurred in 1982, 1983, correct? Yes. After the Falklands War. Uh, anything more we should know about that period and how that affected uh, what was to follow? Um, so I think one important aspect of this period was in the elections that occurred. It there was no candidate from the military um, the way happened in other um, dictatorships or what happened in other dictatorships where a candidate who was representing the military would run and the military would maintain power that way. There was no such candidate. And the contest was between the Peronist party and the radical party. And the radical party candidate, Raul Alfonsin, was the one who ended up becoming victorious. And something that I argue in my thesis is that this was an important moment for Argentine democracy because the Peronist party had had so much power in the past that by putting forward this candidate um, from the radical party who ended up becoming victorious, that this was a good sign for Argentine democracy because it didn't mean that you would have this return to a democracy where really only one party the Peronist party would have a strong influence. There was kind of more of this ability to have 
real debate because the radical party was taking on a stronger role now. And the Peronists had had their own record of abuses of democracy, right? Right. They were the, that under Juan Peron and then, and then Isabel Peron, they also violate a lot of democratic norms. So now you had somebody that was connected neither with the military regime or the previous Peronistas. Exactly. So, uh, so Alphonsine is elected. Uh, in your thesis, you have this interesting discussion about democratic, the democratic response uh, after the dictatorship, where you talk about horizontal and vertical responses. Uh, you want to describe that? I thought that was very intriguing. Yes. So I was looking at all the different forces that were impacting Alphonsine's decision-making process as he went about um, this this human rights process of how are we going to prosecute the human rights abuses that occurred. And something that I found useful in order to analyze these different forces was this concept of democratic accountability. So the idea of horizontal accountability refers to the way the different branches of government influence each other, basically the idea of checks and balances, so that Though Alphonsine had his own agenda, his own um, plan, that the legislative branch and the judicial branch also had a large impact on what agenda was ultimately pursued. And then the idea of vertical accountability being the way the population, the public, um, voters, those outside of government institutions can then influence the institution, the government institutions. Um, and one way that these these two like streams of accountability interact, I found interesting in the way that the judicial branch was used. So in the Argentine um, criminal procedure, private citizens could file criminal complaints. So those citizens who had either suffered abuses themselves or whose family members had been disappeared, they could file these criminal complaints um, and through the, ju- the judicial branch, this was a greater pressure on Alphonsine um, who was pursuing what has been called more limited, a limited pursuit of justice in order to extend that vision of justice a bit because of the pressures um, from the public through, these, through this filing of complaints. Yeah, oftentimes in these transitions, uh, the former military dictators try to uh, pass get laws passed that provide them with some kind of immunity from prosecution or amnesty for any of the abuses they had committed. Uh, was there an attempt to do that in Argentina? How did that work out? Yes. Yeah, so the military itself passed an amnesty law when it was on its way out of power. Um, but so then that would have been in this 1982, 1983 yeah. period, right? Mm-hmm. So, but then when Alphonsine um, assumed the office of president, he immediately repealed that amnesty measure. Um, so that, that which would have been a full amnesty was avoided. Um, however, throughout Alphonsine's administration, there were these kind of competing efforts where Alphonsine was attempting to pursue justice for the abuses, but because of fears about Um, instability and the potential for another coup if the military was being pursued too harshly, 
there were other pieces of legislation which limited the amount of prosecutions that would occur. And one of the one of the first ones of these was the full stop law. And this put an end date on when um, citizens could file those complaints that I was talking about earlier. So it essentially gave a deadline by which all of those had to be filed. Um, however, it kind of backfired because human rights organizations and the public themselves worked very hard in order to file those complaints before the deadline. So this effort to to um, keep the military happy in a sense, and also to keep the courts from being overwhelmed, essentially backfired because all of these complaints came in at once anyway. And then another piece of legislation which occurred after that um, in an effort partially to remedy the failure of that law was the due obedience law. And this law um, takes this doctrine of due obedience, which is essentially the idea of um, like follow, a following orders defense, and it limited prosecution to the top levels of the military. So those who were involved in the decision-making processes um, would be able to be prosecuted, but those underneath would not be able to. So it was kind of a preemptive application of this following orders defense, which would avoid prosecution in the first place, as opposed to that just being raised as a defense during the trial proceedings. So in, in the end, uh, trials did happen, right? That yes. Eventually, so trials eventually did people... happen. Mm -hmm. And the most important of these, which was something that Alphonsine was pursuing from the beginning, was the trial of the military juntas themselves. So in the structure of the regime, there were three leaders, and there were um, throughout, throughout the years that the military dictatorship was in power, there were three juntas. So there were nine, um, nine of these top leaders, and they were made to stand trial. And five of them were found guilty for their abuses. And there was a variety of sentences. Um, Videla, who had been the first president, he received, um, it was, it was either greater than 15 years or it was a life sentence. He eventually in later trials um, received life sentences for for his abuses, um, but this was a really important moment in um, Argentina's history, um, as well as the history of Latin America and really worldwide, um, because it was really unheard of that um, that the top leaders of a regime like this would have had to face consequences for the actions that occurred while they were in power. And that didn't happen. In any place else in Latin America, right? No, or, yes, this was the first time that occurred. Right. Uh, you do in your in your thesis, I know, draw some comparative conclusions, uh, some general conclusions about what we can learn uh, about this the transition to democracy from the Argentinian case. Do you want to address that? Yes. Um, so. One really important impact of the trials that did occur in Argentina was the idea that um, holding trials is something that helps human rights conditions improve in the future. So during the time when these, when these trials were being negotiated, one of the big fears was that it was actually making democracy unstable and that 
um, more violence would occur later on. Um, but, but research since then has shown that this really isn't the case, um, that human rights conditions improve the most in those countries where trials do take place, and that um, state violence, as well as like personal criminal violence, decreases um, in those states where trials occur, as opposed to in those where there are no human rights trials for abuses. Um, and so this was particularly important with influencing other nations in the region. So um, Chile, which had a, had a dictatorship of a similar ideology as this regime, um, they, del- they didn't have trials in the beginning. However, eventually um, Pinochet did face trials, um, Pinochet being the leader of the Chilean regime, so that this diffusion of justice from Argentina is something that um, was very important for the region and also globally. Um, something that I talk a lot about in my thesis is this idea of the justice cascade, um, which was something um, developed by a scholar, Catherine Sikink. And she looks at these different streams of justice that have impacted changing norms regarding the prosecutions of human rights abuses so that internationally um, it can be seen that there has been a change from this, from basically a culture of impunity that after a transition, no one's going to answer for these crimes to really demanding these trials and truth commissions and other measures in order to um, hold those abusers accountable. Well, very interesting. So in the end, what's your final conclusion uh, from your, in your thesis? So uh, my, one of my final conclusions is, is addressing this authoritarianism that took place in Argentina, um, that through the process of these trials, that that is something that can be more easily avoided um, in Argentina and is very hopeful for the future of democracy in Argentina. And that this is something that's increasingly pertinent today um, with these rise of authoritarian regimes um, in the world today, as well as more authoritarian behaviors from um, democracies, um, including our own. Yeah. So, and in, and in fact, in Argentina, there's very little uh, support for any kind of renewed military dictatorship or uh, abandonment of democracy right now. Is that is that accurate? Yes. Um, the and I would say especially the the public movement in Argentina is very strong. Um, there is just a very strong sense of um, political activism in Argentina and um, just this, just the strong support for democracy. And something I argue is that having, holding the trials and the truth commission that took place in Argentina is very central to that, to that culture. Yeah. Excellent. So professor Rio Franco's, uh, any questions I should have asked Emily? Uh, you're intimately connect, acquainted with with her thesis. Uh, is there something that that maybe she can tell us about her thesis that I haven't 
uh, touched on? Um, I mean, I think you touched on what some of the most interesting pieces are to me um, and some places where where I both pushed her, but also she was extremely receptive to, to kind of branching out theoretically and comparatively. So I don't necessarily have other questions to add. I think that the questions that you asked about uh, democratic and horizontal accountability and also about how neoliberalism and authoritarianism fit together. Well, you didn't explicitly ask that, but but Emily um, uh, expanded on that a bit. I think are, are some of the things that were most interesting to me about the thesis. Um, in addition to those, I think what, what Emily shows very well and what isn't always done in, in work um, on transitional justice is this very delicate kind of dance between different policymakers, between policymakers and the public, policymakers and the military, all kind of in a context where there's expectations of a military, um, of, of military reaction, right? Of, of, of like the, that the stakes are very high of decisions because the assumption is that the military might re-intervene in politics. Um, and I think Emily nicely shows like how, how that unfolds within and across institutions and within and across the state and society, but also that the specific ways that it unfolded in Argentina, not totally by design, some of it by contingent events, resulted in Argentina being a very stable democracy, you know, not without its many, many, many problems, which we could get into um, economically and, um, and socially, but in terms of, of democracy and democratic um, endurance and stability, as Emily was just saying at the end, Argentina doesn't seem to be in risk of authoritarian backsliding. And that seems to be very connected to the way that transitional justice unfolded. I'll just add um, one piece of that, one piece to sort of emphasize that point, which is that in both Chile and Brazil, albeit in slightly different ways, there there is fear of authoritarian backsliding. In Brazil, it's abundantly obvious that the current president of Brazil is is has an authoritarian tendency in his governance style, um, and that actually that both him being a former military official and being very authoritarian in his governance style, but also the combination of the chaos that his regime has unleashed is inviting military um, intervention. Like there's, there's all, it's all over the news. If you read about Brazil and last week that there are concerns that the military will intervene, not only because Bolsonaro is, um, uh, is friendly to the military, but also because he's been so chaotic that like, and because there is continued support especially among elites, more conservative, politically conservative people, middle and upper middle class people, especially, there is support in Brazil for military intervention, um, much more so than in Argentina, like public support. I'm not saying your average person in Brazil supports that, but it's much higher than in Argentina. And similarly in Chile, where I spent um, uh, about a third of last year doing field work on another topic, um, the, the right in Chile, the conservative, you know, conservative um, individuals and political parties have more and more um, rejuvenated Pinochet's memory, like have sort of positively um, uh, kind of uh, embraced Pinochet's legacy and said, like, you know, we need to go back to something like that. While on the other hand, social movements in Chile, so this is a difference with Brazil, have been explicitly not only contesting that legacy with a lot of protests prior to coronavirus, but also by demanding a new constitution, which is kind of now in the works through a referendum that's going to take place in October, which will solidify um, the transition to democracy, which is a still very incomplete transition in Chile. So just to 
put those two other reference points on the table to more to highlight that Argentina seemingly has escaped the fate of this authoritarian backslide or sort of revanchist right wing kind of um, revalorization of, of, of dictatorship. And that's, you know, due to the processes that Emily explores in her thesis. Yeah. And so Emily's sort of central insight uh, is really uh, quite well established. Yes, yes exactly. I mean, but I, think, but I think it's a very different right. case, a very different case because of the the events that she described. Exactly. And I, and I think that, you know, her work is a contribution if she wants to move forward potentially with publishing parts of it or presenting it at, at academic conferences. I think it, it would be a contribution because she did a tremendous amount of literature review above and beyond the literature that I already was familiar with. And none of that literature details the exact process in the way that she did. Um, there, there isn't um, a type of uh, process tracing based scholarship out there that looks at all institutions of government over these three periods and with their state society interactions aside from this thesis. So I think it's a real contribution and could be, um, and could be put out there in public form. Uh, I hope that it is um, in, in one form or another. So em- Emily, do you think you, you might pursue that? Yeah, I think I would like to um, pursue Even that. with degree in hand, if you <laughs> go, go on and uh, do some more work here. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the thesis process itself. Emily, what, what made you, uh, how did you hear about the senior thesis and what made you interested in, in doing this project? Yeah. So I'm not really sure um, how I first heard about the thesis. I think probably through seeing um, the, just the department emails come out um, throughout my years about um, seniors presenting their projects. And um, this was the first and only time that I did some type of like independent study um, at Providence College. So doing that kind of independent work with um, an advisor was really appealing to me. And just the idea of doing do, working on a larger project that would in a sense be a culmination of my time here at Providence College was really appealing to me, um, particularly being a Spanish and political science major um, with this interest in Argentina already. Um, it seemed like a really good topic that I could explore where I would get to use um, what I had learned in both of these majors, um, particularly with looking at primary texts and getting to read like the laws that were passed in the original Spanish. Um, that was really, really helpful um, with this research. Um, so just getting to work on a project that w- where I would kind of be using all these things I had learned um, was really appealing to me. And I, I presume that you were already acquainted with Professor Rio Francos, correct? Yes. Um, I took comparative politics and Latin American politics. Um, and then this year I also did um, model o- OIS um, in addition to doing my thesis with Professor Rio Francos. Yeah. Okay, great. And Professor Rio Francos, any hesitation when Emily came to you saying she wanted to do a thesis? Um, no, no hesitation. I mean, she's a, a wonderful student, and I had no doubts about her ability to carry out the project. I also had had a previous experience um, two years ago um, 
guiding a thesis um, of, of Gabby, who I, you may remember did a thesis on a comparative economic um, development in, in Venezuela and Brazil. So actually, um, also Latin America. I and, do remember yeah, and, that. And, 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 that was ex- it, an excellent thesis. It was, thesis and as well. I, I believe that it 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 for it sort of was an input into her master's level studies, and she's now thinking about doing a PhD. And so, um, so I think it was it was formative uh, for her. So I had no hesitation because I knew Emily, and also, and I knew she would be great at it. She exceeded my expectations, but um, but she, uh, but I definitely knew that that she'd do a good job. And um, my previous experience had been really great. Um, and I've done also just cause Emily used the term independent study. I'll mention that I've done a lot of independent studies as well that haven't been at the thesis level, but have produced, you know, rigorous term papers. So, um, so I, I really like doing one-on-one work. I actually wish there was more room for it in a way. I mean, obviously everything is, uh, has to fit together in one schedule, but, but I think that it, it's, um, it's very rewarding for, um, for both parties. Yeah, and over the course of the year, you met on a regular basis, I presume. And yeah, we met every two weeks, or every week, and then every two weeks. I feel like we changed our frequency at yeah, some I point. Yeah, I think we kind of switched between doing every two weeks and every week, kind of just depending on where the work was at that. Point. Yeah, and Emily would generally submit something new whether an outline or writing or revisions, um, depending on the stage that we were at prior to each of our meetings. Um, and I would, you know, my, my goal was to read it before we met. Sometimes I would give her comments before I met. Usually I'd give her comments when we went, um, uh, which I think was useful. Well, you know, she can give her own opinion on it. I, I found it useful because I think sharing comments and questions one-on-one in a meeting is, um, more generative than just kind of, giving her the comments in written form. And so we would have long discussions about, about what my thoughts were and, and how she wanted to respond to them and what her ideas were um, during our meetings. And so Emily, how, how did doing this project compare to your other work at Providence College? Uh, how would you characterize this compared to say the courses you took or? Yeah, I think it's just, it's a very different type of work when you're doing independent work, um, just because it does have to be like more self-driven. Um, but that being said, like having the individual support then of, a, of an advisor is so helpful then too, because um, even though you're doing a lot of the work on your own, then the professor you're working with is just working with you then too. And really it is just focused on, you can go into so much more detail, I think too. Um, that you can really, really hone things to make them um, really in depth, really, and kind of look at every pathway available too. There, there's just the opportunity for a lot more rigor um, in uh, independent work like this. And Emily, there were there were two other members of your committee, uh, Professor Susan McCarthy, uh, who actually was uh, our guest on Beyond Your Newsfeed, uh, our last episode was with Professor McCarthy. So she's a political scientist. And then you also had uh, Father David O'Reek from the History Department on your committee. Uh, how did you go about selecting your other committee members? What was involved with that decision? Yeah, so um, being a Latin American studies minor, I had worked with Father David before. And he also was um, very instrumental to me when I was applying for the Smith Fellowship, which was 
how I went to Argentina um, the summer of 2018. Um, so he has a lot of um, just personal knowledge of Argentina. He spent a lot of time there and from a historical perspective as well. Um, and he was someone who I felt could offer a really good perspective on the work I was doing. Um, and then with Dr. McCarthy, I had previously taken comparative revolutions with her and I really enjoyed that class. Um, and even though this was like a very different topic from what we had discussed then, um, I think discussing with Professor Rio Francos who would be a good option for another political science professor for my committee, um, her name came up and I really liked the idea of um, hearing her perspective on it um, and getting her feedback. And so Professors McCarthy and Arique also read drafts of your thesis and gave you some feedback and comments as you went along as well. Uh, so Father David did a bit. Um, Dr. McCarthy just read my, my final draft and gave me um, feedback then for that, but not through the process throughout. Um, right. Because Father David also, he, he loves um, writing, like just editing and writing. So he was really helpful in that process. Um, looking at it in a different way than I think I would from a political science writing perspective as well um, because of the way like historical writing I think is. I think he helped make my writing a lot better as well throughout the process. Super. So this was really a, a community effort that contributed to this fine piece of scholarship. Uh, do either of you have any other comments about the thesis itself or what you learned from the process? Uh, any takeaways to leave with our listeners? Um, I guess the, la the only thing I would say is that it, it's such a rewarding process, as I already said. I would encourage more PC students to consider doing theses, um, and um, and I would you know encourage our department to encourage them more. Uh, I think that they're they're really great, and you know there's my I think the sort of best. Um, uh, most intellectually interesting um, aspect of doing one's own research as a political scientist or as a social scientist in general is kind of grappling with how evidence and empirical observations fit together or maybe innovate on theories and just kind of that back and forth between the empirical and the theoretical. And what was so great about working with Emily is that she's very open to, to exploring how, how those two interact, but also that our conversations, I think, kind of modeled that because she would tell me, you know, something that she learned, some specific thing, and it would remind me of some concept that I maybe hadn't thought about since graduate school. And so I would bring it up like, I'm no, I'm not a democratic accountability scholar, exactly. I mean, I, my work touches on it, but, but her work reminded me of the vertical and horizontal accountability framework. And so I brought that up and then she worked it in and then she came back with new ideas. And so that kind of iterative process, I think, which is how the best scholarship unfolds is, is exemplified, you know, in our thesis meetings and, um, and, and was, is the same in prior experiences that I have with Gabby as well. So I think that's kind of the, um, what I like the best about this process. And, and Emily, would you have any advice for another, some other student who might maybe is thinking about a senior thesis uh, what would you tell them if they called you up or or connected with you on Zoom and asked, <laughs> uh, should I do this or not? Yeah, I would definitely encourage more students to, um, to pursue writing a thesis. Um, and I think one thing that's a bit intimidating about the process is the idea 
of trying to contribute something new to a field of knowledge. I think that can be um, pretty intimidating, and it was for me. But I think with the encouragement of Dr. Rio Francos to really delve deep into the ideas I was exploring and um, really encouraging me to come up with my own like frames of analysis for things, um, I think it's something that is ultimately incredibly rewarding and that even if even if it seems intimidating or impossible when you're confronted with all the existing research on a certain topic, um, it's something that you can see, you can really see yourself grow as you go deeper and um, attempt to find where the gaps are in the research because there's always, there's always more to look at. There's always more um, to study and analyze in such a complex and wide field. And an undergraduate student can make a scholarly contribution. Absolutely. Yes. Like you have done. So thanks so much, Emily. Uh, I think you did a great job telling us about your thesis. It was a very interesting piece of research. I I thought it was when I heard your defense a couple of weeks ago and so glad you could be with us and and share your ideas with a a broader audience on the podcast. And hopefully uh, your your discussion will inspire other Providence College students to, and perhaps students at other institutions to uh, take on uh, a senior honors thesis. Uh, so thanks very much. And uh, Professor Rio Francos, thank you for joining us. And thank you for taking the time to work with great students like Emily Asherill. Uh, we appreciate that. Okay. So I think uh, we'll wind it up there. Uh, thanks again to our intrepid Producer Reagan Wind, uh, also a graduate. Uh, Reagan, thanks a lot for all you've done uh, to allow us to get together remotely to do these podcasts. And thanks also to the continuing support of the Marketing Communications uh, Department. Uh, Joe Carr and Chris Judge uh, have been great supporters of this podcast. And thanks most of all to our listeners. Please tell four friends about the podcast. And remember to rate us on iTunes and subscribe uh, if you haven't, uh, wherever you get your podcast. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.